J.D. John, F.J. at OffBeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Monday, so this is an archive show. First published as a newspaper column sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published in the papers on March 2nd of 2014, under the headline, Midnight Murder of Logger in Klamath Falls Still a Mystery. At around 2 p.m. on a sunny Monday afternoon in August 1911, Klamath Falls resident John Hunsaker was driving past the Oak Avenue Canal when he saw something in it. Something that looked like it could be a man. Now this canal was the waterway that carried the Pioneer City's untreated sewage out to the Link River. So although some things were occasionally observed floating in it, they usually weren't people. Hunsaker took a closer look. It was a man, all right or rather, the body of a man. And there was no mystery as to how he had died. The right side of his head showed two massive wounds, apparently inflicted with an axe. But as to where this had happened, and by whom, that was another story. The body, as it turned out, belonged to a man named Charles Lyons. Lyons was a logger working in a camp at Stuckel Mountain just a few miles outside of Klamath Falls. On the previous Friday morning, three days before his body was found, Lyons had drawn his pay, a whopping $80 in cash, equivalent to about 2100 bucks today, and headed for town to blow her in with Ben Robbs, his buddy from work at the logging camp. The two of them had arrived in Klamath Falls and checked into a hotel before sallying forth to paint the town. They first stopped at a watering hole called The Roadhouse, where they got the night started off with a few drinks, and Lyons had the house barber give him a shave. He clearly wanted to look and smell his best for the ladies later that night. And yes, there would be ladies. He and Rob then made their way to the swankiest, fanciest, swingingest bordello that Klamath Falls had to offer. Faye Melbourne's Red House located near the Oak Avenue Canal, at the foot of a small bridge known to the locals as the Bridge of Sighs. The Bridge of Sighs was named in a joking reference to the famous Ponte de Sospiri in Venice, the covered and fortified bridge across the Rio di Palazzo Canal, which connects what was once Venice's prison with the interrogation rooms in the Doge's Palace. The condemned being conveyed across the bridge supposedly had one last chance to peer out through the stone-barred windows at the beauty of Venice before being hustled down the hall to their execution or imprisonment. Klamath Falls Bridge of Size, on the other hand, crossed from the city's thriving red-light district on one side of the canal to the city jail on the other. The name is a joking reference to the frequency with which city cops escorted drunken, rowdy revelers across the bridge to be lodged in the city joint. Lyon and Robbs now hurried across that bridge in the other direction, eager to get to Miss Melbourne's place and continue the party. They got there around 7 p.m. As the evening wore on, the two furloughed loggers burned through their money. By midnight, Robbs had had enough and was ready for bed. Lyon's, though, was just getting started. He was drunk, but not dead drunk, and not yet ready to call it a night. So Robbs left him there in the care of the friendly ladies of the Red House and headed for the hotel. He never saw Charles Lyons alive again. 
At first, authorities thought perhaps the drunken lions had simply fallen off the Bridge of Size into the unsanitary water of the canal and drowned. This theory, however, lasted only until the body was lifted from the water and they saw the massive wounds on his head. Such wounds would have let out quarts of blood, but police scrounged all along the banks of the canal for clues and on the bridge and they found nothing. Police ran a fine-toothed rake along the bottom of the canal, hoping to find the weapon. An unfortunate assistant was drafted to dive to the bottom of the filthy waterway every time they snagged something and bring it to the surface. But again, nothing. This unsolved murder near the red light district intensified public pressure for the city to do something about the brothels. After all, prostitution was supposed to be illegal. Another highly publicized incident in December at another openly secret bordello, the Comet Lodging House, whipped the public up even more. It happened just before Christmas, and it involved the arrest of the town's most notorious septuagenarian, a disreputable and disorderly Civil War vet popularly known as Old Man Haley. Quote, Several nights ago in the Comet Lodging House, Old Man Haley was making Rome howl, the Klamath Falls Evening Herald reported. He was disrobed, in bed, full drunk, and waving a $10 bill in his hand. Apparently, all the Comet's employees had declined to earn Old Man Haley's $10, and he'd taken offense, so the Comet had called the cops to escort him and his $10 across the Bridge of Size to spend the night in the drunk tank. Which they did, of course, but many Klamath Falls citizens thought the whole affair was a municipal embarrassment. Prodded by these citizens, City Hall ordered all the ladies of the evening to close up shop. They, of course, ignored the edict, and so it was that in January 1912, Miss Faye Melbourne found herself in the dock, facing charges of operating a body house. Now, this was not a new situation for Miss Faye. In that era, Oregon was full of bordellos pretending to be something else, and their proprietresses frequently had to face charges. Usually, this was part of the cost of doing business. It was a way to transfer some of their income over to City Hall, while giving the impression of rigorous law enforcement. This was understood by all parties to the transaction. It was basically payola under the color of authority. But something was different this time. For one thing, Miss Fay's lawyer in court accused police chief Samuel Walker of collaborating with and shielding the town's bordellos in exchange for a cut of the take. In fact, Walker was actually forced to admit that Miss Fay had solicited his advice about where to build her illegal bordello. Clearly, the gloves were off. Well, the verdict in the trial was a hung jury. Eight to four. A new trial would have to be scheduled. Posting $200 in bail money, Miss Fay walked out the door and was never seen again. Behind her, she left her palatial, richly furnished real estate, which, unlike most bordello madams, she actually owned outright. She left her mail piling up at the post office. She even left her lawyer in the lurch for his court fees. The newspapers concluded she'd skip town to avoid prosecution. But prosecution for prostitution? An offense worth at most a month or two in jail? Why would she do a thing like that? Lake County historian Melanie Tupper suggests it might have been because she'd learned she was about to be indicted as an accessory to the murder of Charles Lyons. After all, it was in her place that he'd last been seen. Could that be where he was murdered? Well, it is an intriguing theory. Lyons, after getting really drunk, tries to force himself on one of the girls. In defense, one of the other employees steps up behind him with an axe and lets him have it right behind the ear. Miss Faye's terrified employees quickly mop up the blood, wrapping Lyons in a blanket, hustling his body out onto the bridge of size and dropping him in, hoping he'll sink out of sight. 
Well, maybe. I mean, it does explain why Miss Faye would be so desperate to skip town in anticipation of a murder rap. But there is a darker possibility. Darker and frankly, given that Miss Faye clearly had some dirt on some very powerful people in Klamath Falls, probably more likely. It involves a blackjack and a shallow grave somewhere in the woods outside of town. But of course, we'll probably never know. Key sources in this story included works by Melanie Tupper, the Portland Morning Oregonian, and the Klamath Falls Evening Herald. That's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 500 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Other Offbeat Oregon goodies include an active Facebook page, a Twitter feed, a ton of historic photos, and a bunch more stuff. Plus a book, including visuals for today's show and full citations to sources. All these things are accessible via our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.